0: From our
1: 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm Peter Hartlaub, pop culture critic for the San Francisco Chronicle, and it's John C. Riley Day on the Datebook podcast. Riley was in the middle of the press tour from hell when he came to the Chronicle to appear on Datebook Podcasts last month. He had four films coming out in a three-month period, including Ralph Breaks the Internet and Holmes and Watson. But he seemed more than happy to talk about his new film, Stan and Ollie, the biopic that covers the final tour of Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy. I thought it was very cool that months after the movie wrapped, he's still researching Hardy, like he's going for a PhD on the groundbreaking comedian. He looked through our hearty photo file in the Chronicle Archive, was taking photos, and even after the podcast was over, was talking about the comedian. Stan and Ollie arrives in theaters in the San Francisco Bay Area on January 18th, Datebook Podcast. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the San Francisco Chronicle, John C. Riley. Thank you. I mean, yes, hello. Hi. (laughs) So we're down in the archive, and um, we're going to talk about Stan and Ollie. I have to think, though, you you seem like you might be on a never-ending press tour right now. You've got a lot of movies out.
0: Yeah, four four movies between September and January this year. That's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot. All I do is talk about myself these days. (laughs) How's that going? What cities have you been to recently? Let's see. Uh, I could list them all. Yeah, you don't have to. I started to. with sisters, brothers. So it was Venice, Deauville, Paris, Ghent, London, Dublin, Toronto, New York, San Francisco. Yeah, uh, <laughs> a few other places too.
1: Do you get to? Do you get to visit the cities at all? Do you get to see anything, or is it just pretty pretty much in and out? Uh, it depends
0: where you're going. Yeah. Uh, if you have to be to the next place, there's very little time usually to wander around. But I try to build in at least a day or two to recover. Because if the studios have their way, they just send you somewhere, you do your press day, and then within 24 hours you're leaving there again. And that, that just that kind of whiplash from moving that much can can really tire you out. But uh It's difficult work talking about stuff. You know, it's not really what I signed up for as an actor. It's not what I thought I would ever be doing. But by the same token, uh, these are all very
1: great movies. And I'm really proud of them, especially Stan and Ollie. Yeah, I think this film, it looks like there's so much detail involved. These were two very detail-oriented comedians And then the idea of having to play them, I'm thinking this must have been a great undertaking for you and Steve Coogan who play Laurel and Hardy. Yeah, it was a
0: great undertaking. It was a big intimidating uh, prospect too. Uh, And I don't know, if I had to really like jump in and and fully commit at one time, I don't think I would have done it actually. (laughs) It was these tiny little steps along the way that slowly gave me enough courage to attempt it. Uh, starting with, you know, John Baird coming to me with the script and telling me you're the only guy, you know, the movie might not happen if you don't do it, to, you know, meeting Steve. Oh, I had met him before, but really getting together was even discussing the project, realizing, like, I'd have a great partner in Steve. And then another important step was seeing that makeup, seeing the mock-up for the makeup. Uh, that made me realize, like, okay, well, I'll look like the guy at least, now i just have to find out who he was you know go inside but i knew the outside would be taken care of well because mark coulier is a genius you know the the makeup man um yeah and then also little steps along the way as we developed the script gave me the confidence because when they first came to me i thought like well this is a fool's errand who wants to recreate laurel and hardy They already exist they they haven't been lost you know they're still there you can watch everything they did on YouTube right now Um, and so I thought well the only reason and and there's no point even to do to doing a biopic that lists all the facts of their lives because you can find that on Wikipedia in 10 seconds like that was one of the things I kept saying as we're developing the script I was like guys this is the age we live in there's no point in doing a movie that you can find out the information you're presenting easily on your phone. Mm-hmm. So that became kind of one of our guiding principles as we went through and developed the script was uh, what where do we have artistic license? you know, Where can we uh, investigate some aspect of their relationship that no one except them knew? And that means like the little conversations on trains on backstage. And those little private conversations that performers have with each other, especially guys that knew each other this well, I thought like, well, that I could do, Hmm. you know, because I'll never be as great as Oliver Hardy. Nobody will. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about Laurel and Hardy. They're unique. they were the most unique partnership and the longest creative partnership among performers that I can think of. Um, So there's no point in trying to out Hardy Hardy, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but... I know what it feels like to be a performer, and I know what it feels like to be in intense partnerships with people. I know what it means to travel for a living and, and have to meet strangers all the time and entertain them. So I felt confident, like I understood what their lifestyle was like, um, and that gave me enough courage to 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 jump in.
1: Did you know Steve Coogan very well?
0: I met him a couple times, but yeah. very briefly, just in social situations. But I, I really, I really came to love Steve. Uh, we really hit it off, and um, it's funny. Like English people, I always assume, I, I always assume, like English people are fancier in some way. Mm-hmm. At least posh-sounding English people are fancier than Americans. And so I thought, oh, Steve, here's this sort of uh, famous, r- rich English guy, like. And then he, I got to know him and he's like, no he's a Irish Catholic, raised in a similar way that I was uh, you know he's he, he's been a comedian uh, he's an actor so I, what I, I was I was delighted to find out that we had so much in common and that Steve really really could make me laugh um, <laughs> that was really important as we went through and Steve's also like a real genius with Comedy and the timing of jokes and what makes something Uh, funny—not just whether something is funny, but what makes it funny. Steve has got a great mind for that. Um, So I had a great partner in him and all kinds of help all over the place. Um, But it was still, with all that help, was still real white knuckler of of an assignment, I have to say. Um, But every time I got scared or every time I felt uncomfortable or or tired or worn out my mantra was oliver 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 it's for him it's for this guy it's for these beautiful clowns you know some short-term discomfort or nervousness uh on my part was nothing compared to like what they gave the world so the overall mission of the film was not only to make a story that was unique and original and drew people into the personal lives of these guys. But the, the overall mission is to reacquaint audiences with their work, mm-hmm. and not just because I like their work or because I have some kind of nostalgia about the 1930s. The reason I want to reintroduce their work, especially to young people, is that it's funny. Yeah. It still works. It's still relevant. What they did in the 1930s is still relevant now, you know, and I think they deliberately chose to write their scripts and uh, and tell their stories in a way that was always universal and somehow, uh, you know recognizable to human beings everywhere. That's why they became international stars. And I can tell you from doing comedy, it's really hard to get a a comedy movie to play overseas. Because a lot of times it's cultural references or or a particular brand of humor that exists in your country, maybe not so so much in Korea or whatever. But these guys, they were beloved all over the world. And um, part of the reason is that they used to do takes of their movies in other languages, they would hold up cue cards with phonetic spellings of the th- of the dialogue in German <laughs> or in Italian or in Spanish. Yeah, And then, so rather than subtitles, their films would go in original language to places like Italy and Germany, all over the world. So those places embraced them as if they were their own. You know, they have different nicknames all over the world. Like in Italy, it's Stanley Olio and... Germany is like Dorf and Dumf or something <laughs> like that, and and people in those places thought of Oliver uh, thought of Oliver and Stan as their own, yeah. not some imported act from somewhere else, but their own comedians. And, and at a time in the world when we're so torn apart, and and the differences between people are so highlighted, and it's red and blue and black and white and all of it, uh, they. Joined people together with their humor and their work in a really beautiful way. At a, at a also a very difficult time in the world during the Great Depression, during the rise of fascism. You know, it was not a rosy world that they lived in. They lived in an intense world, just like we are right now. But um, but they made people respond in a universal way. They mm-hmm. made people appreciate h- the human experience in a way that didn't have anything to do with their language or their country or their religion or their political party. And that's really – that's something I think uh, I aspire to. You know, that's that's getting at the truth about humanity. If you can do that, that means you're telling the truth. You're being honest about the
1: human existence.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it the movie, a lot of it takes place later in their lives. And they're coming together. Um, I don't want to give away spoilers, but it's it's history. They're coming together for a Eng- England tour. and um, But there's a flashback in the beginning, a six-minute tracking shot that I think just tells so much about the detail of their comedy and the preparation they put into it, yet they seem casual about it. Um, I'm sure that wasn't the first shot that you... That you shot for the film, but I, I thought that was extremely impressive in setting the scene for who these men were.
0: Well, thanks. Yeah, that was. A, it looks like one continuous six-minute take, but in fact, it's in three parts uh-huh. and it's stitched together through digital magic. But and and it is one of the last things we did. We actually didn't get to those that part of the movie until later in the schedule. But um, yeah, well, thank you. I thought it was. I'm, I thought it was a brilliant. Um, way to visually bring you into what the reality was very quickly by john baird the director the director um not only their world but the world they were in all around all around them you know these different performers and what life was like on a, a studio, and a studio a lot but um yeah yeah i mean <laughs> that just, those long takes are really fun for me being someone who came up in theater I love it when we do long takes like that because that you know you won't be interrupted by the director saying cut or <laughs> like, do it this way or stop you know like you're really given the sort of freedom that theatrical actors have you yeah. know which is pretty rare on movies usually it's a
1: lot of stopping and starting Th- there's a sequence at the end which is a real sequence from uh from Way Out West one of their films and how long did you guys work on that and And part two of the question, could you do it now? You don't have to.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I could do parts of it. Uh, Uh I mean, I did move some of that stuff out of my brain to make room for other things. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, uh, yeah, The Way Out West Dance, that, you know, what I said about it would be a fool's errand to try to recreate Laurel and Hardy. Well, we did try to do it in that case. And it's really the only place in the whole movie where where we tried to replicate what they did if we could. Mm-hmm. And um that was a that was a big challenge and it was something we started doing for weeks and weeks ahead of time even before our own rehearsal time. I was meeting with Steve on the weekends while I was doing another film and rehearsing that dance because we knew like, you know, we we're, we're as big a Laurel and Hardy fans as anybody, and we knew that the fans of of laurel and Hardy would would notice if we didn 't get it right so what was interesting about doing that way out west dance though was it wasn 't just a series of dance steps it is there it 's a brilliant joke the whole dance is a brilliant joke. it starts with a foot tap and escalates into this in 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 the style of one of their classic escalating comedy bits um, It starts out as a dance literally a child could do, and it turns into this crazy silly. Over the top dance, but um, so you're not only doing the steps, but you're if you if you're trying to replicate what they did, you're replicating their mistakes also. Mm -hmm. So Oliver in a couple places would lose time a little bit and then catch up. You know that's what kind of what makes that dance so compelling to watch, is that it's a little bit of a tight wire. You know you Mm -hmm. see them you know getting through it. It kind of expands and contracts, and they find their way back to it, and they add these funny little flourishes all along the way. so we uh we went about it very forensically that that sequence, you know we tried we try to do exactly what they did and and what we did, to be fair, what we did was harder than what they did because if you watch the film way out west, that dance begins while the camera's looking out at out, away from the saloon, and then halfway through the dance, the camera angle switches towards the saloon, mm-hmm. which means that they did that dance in two pieces. Yeah. Steve and I rehearsed that dance in its entirety, <laughs> and when we filmed it, we filmed it in its entirety. You know, um,
1: how many takes was
0: that? I, I, we did as many takes as until until my knees gave out. Actually, yeah. my, one of my knees started to hurt, and I, we had to stop. But um, and, and the director wanted to stop four takes before that. It was Steve <laughs> and I that were like one more, one more. Okay, well, I want to fix this one thing. I just was I was a little late on the hat or whatever. Um, but then. Uh, luckily a lot of the other sequences in the movie were things from their stage show where there is no film that exists of it. It was just a script or, you know, s- stories from people that saw the stage show. So we would have to, like for instance, there's a double door routine yeah, where we're in a waiting room of a railway station on stage and, and we keep missing each other through these doors. We had to create that because all it said in our script was they do a double door routine and then it's just, you know, uh, people who had seen their theater show remember this double-door routine, but it doesn't really exist anywhere, other than there's a movie called Helpmates. They do a great double-door routine in an el- in two elevators. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so we, in the places where we had to create comedy routines like the checking into the hotel with the hotel clerk Mm we do a whole bunch of crazy (laughs) stuff there and the double door routine and a bunch of other places we we were sort of inspired by them and and we would use whatever factual basis we had in terms of the act like this is what they would have done this is what they did do and then but we had to kind of create it you know and that was also really intimidating but if you know that the story of Stan and Ollie, which is that they were just two guys plucked out of obscurity by Hal Roach and thrown together. I mean, they were actors; they were working in the business; they were in Hollywood, mm-hmm. but they did not know each other, and they didn't have an act. And Hal Roach had just lost Harold Lloyd because Harold Lloyd went off to start his own studio, and he, Hal Roach, was in a panic. I got to find my next stars. How about the fat guy and the skinny guy? It was mm-hmm. like that's much how much thought went into it. <laughs> and he threw them together and said, "Come up with an act, boys." and um yeah it's just they're a fascinating pair because they were the authors of these characters too it wasn't like written for them by someone else they were the authors of these personas so it was really fun in our film exploring how much of the stage or screen persona was based in the reality of who they were because a lot of it had to be if it was coming right out of them being the authors of these characters, then it had to be based on something. And the more I found out about Oliver Hardy in particular, the more I realized this kind of hyper romantic, very genteel, uh, romantic kind of guy is just in a an illumination or, uh, or, you know, like a larger version of who he was in his private life. He, he loved to drink and eat good food and you know, the fruits of Hollywood at that time. It was a pretty fun place to work, if especially if you were the two most popular guys in town for a yeah. while there, um, whereas Stan was much more like a workhorse. He just was not interested in that stuff. He would just go back to the editing room and work on the edit and compulsively write and come up with new sketches. He was really the engine uh, for production for them behind the scenes. Um, Oliver was like a very important sounding board for jokes, and if it passed Ollie's, Test. Then it usually ended up in their scripts. But um, they were real interesting guys. I'll tell you. And so, so, so in those in those places where Steve and I had to come up with stuff and and rehearse whole new routines with each other, one of the things that gave me confidence was, well, this is exactly what happened to Stan and Ollie. Mm-hmm. They didn't know each other. They didn't have an act. They were thrown together in a room and by someone and said, figure something out. Find some chemistry. <laughs> Uh, and so, yeah, Steve and I eventually did
1: by doing the same things that they did. I I was struck. You, you mentioned the double door scene. How well that stands up. I have a thirteen year old son, and I I can't wait to show it to him. You know, it, it the humor stands up through these years. As you were doing this research, did that strike you more and more? Yeah, I mean that's. Like I was saying before, like it's
0: not just nostalgia that makes me appreciate San It's because it still works. Yeah. <laughs> what well, they figured out some stuff about what's funny, and it still works. So um, that I mean, I'm really uh, impressed when I watched Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton, and Harold mm-hmm. Lloyd. They were brilliant uh, acrobats. They were brilliant comedians and they did a lot of amazing stuff but when you watch their work at least when I watch their work I have more of a sort of awe experience where I'm just like wow look what they could do he's hanging from a clock tower that's really a clock tower or look at Charlie's on roller skates and doing this or that but it's more like impressed when I watch Laurel and Hardy I laugh out loud when I'm by myself I mean, I don't laugh out loud when I'm alone much at all when I watch anything, um, let alone something from, you know, 80 years ago or something. But, um, yeah, that that is a really – I'm glad you're going to show it to your son because that's one of the reasons that we did this movie, to yeah. try to get younger people plugged back into some of their work. It's all there. It's never been easier to watch it. It's free on YouTube right now. When you're done with this podcast, go watch some Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> uh-
1: I got to ask you about costume and makeup. Uh when I mean he's a 305 pounds man and uh that had to be a lot of time for you. Uh yes.
0: Uh he was more than 305 actually <laughs> but uh towards the end of his life but um yeah. well right towards the end of his life he actually lost a ton of weight because he was ill and those are shocking to see those photographs and he looks happy cuz it's yeah. the, he really wanted to lose weight a lot of his life he did want to lose weight and the studio would often say no 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 like let's not mess with the formula <laughs> um so that was a strange burden for him to to have and in the 1930s to be that size was a real oddity yeah. you know during the depression where people are starving to death to be this big giant guy like it was a lot of big people in our world now. You know, we're all very well-fed. But back then, <laughs> to be Oliver Hardy was to really stand out. Yeah. Uh, and I and I had a lot of empathy for that because, you know, I know what it was like just being in the costume. I'd go stand outside the theater sometime to cool off, and strangers would walk by. They didn't know who the hell I was or who Oliver was, for that matter. They would just look at me and see this sweaty, fat man, and they would, they'd kind of catch your eye and then look away. You know, like they... Uh, I shouldn't stare, it's sad, that big fat man sitting there. And you realize, like, wow, they want me to disappear. They don't want me to be here.
1: It's a very realistic costume, though. Yeah, yeah. it
0: is. And, you know, like I said, we had Marc Coulier, one of the best prosthetic men in the whole world, doing it. Um, uh, yeah, and that fat suit was really interesting because there's two different looks like you mentioned. There's the 1930s look when he was one size and then the 1953 look when most of the movie takes place. Um, so there was two sets of prosthetics and fat suit to um, to design, and it's funny when we first started designing the or we when they first started designing the fat suit, they were bringing them in and I try them on. It's like you know, there's something sad about this because they were just looking at the height and the weight you know like okay well if you were this tall and you weighed this much this is how it would hang on your body but it was hanging so low like the stomach was like kind of between my legs and uh i was like guys this might be a technically real uh version of this but this is not what he looked like he didn't look sad you know Mm -hmm. he always carried himself with this grace and this dignity as if he was working against the weight all the time you know in this incredible grace and poise um so then i was like and but we had to get that suit designed because mm-hmm. in order to build the clothes you have to build the body so you couldn't do any costume work until we got that fat suit design so i was like it was cutting down to the wire and i was like i know it's not right i know it's not right. we have to do another version of the suit and so i was like think 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 what did he look like because there's no pictures of him naked obviously but what did he look like what is his body what was the shape of his body and then i remember like his nickname is babe and they called him babe because he looked like a fat little baby from the time he was born until the time he died his whole life he looked like a chubby baby he didn't look like a fat man he looked like a chubby baby Mm -hmm. so i was like all right Chubby baby. And I start Googling images of chubby babies (laughs) and I start sending them to the fatsu people. That's it. And I realized it's like, that's the key. His nickname is the key. And so the fat then was like piled on him all over, like up higher and on his arms and on his legs. This big old pachyderm butt, uh, uh, you know, like then it all came into focus, you know. And it was funny using something as simple as his nickname to find your way. To the shape of him, you know.
1: Well, he was a nimble man. He wasn't uh, you know, someone who was who was collapsing under his own weight. Yeah, know? he was very nimble and
0: very dexterous. But you know, he was also big. You yeah. know, like I think, like I know, I know people that are smaller than Oliver that that move with much less poise than than he did with all that uh,
1: weight. So you came into the chronicle. I'll, I'll just set the scene. We're surrounded by a bunch of photos that go back to the 1800s. And I brought out the Laurel and Hardy file. And you went into this like you're researching it all over again. I mean, the movie's over, but it doesn't seem like this rolls completely over for you. <laughs> well, I saw a couple of photographs. What happened is
0: you needed to take someone else to a different part of the building for a yeah, second. You yeah. left me in here alone. <laughs> and I saw, I saw a couple of photographs that I didn't recognize. Yeah. And I thought, What if I'm not allowed to photograph these? I better hurry up. And so I did, you know, like like uh, like a CIA agent, like quickly photographing the documents before you got back. Of course, there were so many that I did many of them while you were sitting here. And luckily, you allowed me to photograph them. But totally okay. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating, especially the kind of the news uh, the news item ones where it's just like him and his wife, or you know, these publicity still ones that I haven't seen before. Um, I just, uh, you know. I just never tire of these guys. I've been yeah. obsessed with them my whole life. I've been aware of them since I was aware. I mean, am I f- from I don't remember a time where I discovered them because
1: they were always there. Yeah. Well, I I was digging through them too and I it connected with the movie because the movie seems to be about going beyond the myths. As you said, people can look them up on Wikipedia and I saw one caption on one of these later in their career that said quote we've never had a fight you know and (laughs) and the movie goes beyond that and i i'm i'm not really asking a question anymore i'm just letting people know that that this is more than the wikipedia page i mean it could have been about two different people and i think the movie would have worked um well that's yeah
0: that's interesting i'm glad it's about these people yeah and there's a there's there's very little footage of oliver um you know, talking as himself. Yeah. And I saw this one newsreel um, interview that he did, and it must have been one, on one of these tours because they did three or four of them actually. And we, we focused on the last one. But he's standing there at dockside, and someone's interviewing him. This guy's interviewing him, and he's like, What's it like to be reunited with Stan? And, and Oliver's like, No, no, no. We were never, we never broke up. Yeah. We're the longest duo act in history. And he was really proud of that, that they hadn't got. So maybe they were intimating that one. They so said, we've never had a fight. Sure. It never actually split up. Yeah. You know, uh, One notable exception that we go into in the film is this one film that Oliver did uh, without Stan because he had to contractually. But um, that's a really... In, in, the fact that he was really aware of it and he pointed it out to this reporter made me realize like it was important to them. It was important to them that people n- knew... We've been to, We never broke up, even though we, our movies might not have been as popular, we were always together. and that's, that's incredibly unique. I don't know any other performers that spent their entire lives only working with each
1: other. Uh, well, I learned a ton, and I'm learning more now, just talking to you. Um, Stan and Ollie is out January it comes out, a
0: limited run, December 28th, uh, in, I believe just in Los Angeles and New York. Sorry, yeah. San Francisco. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but then after the first of the year, it opens wider, and I hope people will go check it out because it's a very inspiring movie about just about two people getting along. And, you know, in this time of strife that we're in, um, the, some very important friends of mine who have seen the movie have said to me, like, man, did I, I didn't even know I needed to watched that movie, but I really needed it. I needed to watch something that showed people getting over uh, conflict and coming back in love with each other. Yeah,
1: I I walked out thinking of other people I wanted to show it to. So I hope a lot of people see it. And uh, thanks for coming to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you. My pleasure. It's an honor. Datebook Podcast. Thanks for listening. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to my guest, John C. Riley. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producer is King Kaufman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is Mozart's Symphony 40 in G minor by Blue Dot Sessions. Read our columns and subscribe to The Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. San Francisco Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com podcasts with an S.